Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host, Lee Phelan. Welcome back to My Cousin Jane. Today we're going to be talking about Persuasion Chapter 11, but not like your English lit teacher might talk about it, but like the special bonus features of your favorite movie, the behind the scenes view. So as chapter 11 opens, we are discussing taking a road trip to Lyme Regis, a charming coastal town in southwestern England. Now the Regis part of Lyme Regis's name was added after Lyme was granted a royal charter in the late 1200s by King Edward I. These charters were kind of used for a bunch of different things, but in this case, it essentially granted Lyme the right to self-govern as much as one could self-govern within the broader laws and dictates of the kingdom at the time. And you'll find a lot of things in the UK with the name Regis attached to them, or sometimes the name sometimes the name kings attached to them or queens. And both terms generally mean this place has some special connection to the crown, though sometimes uh, what that connection was is lost to antiquity. Nobody's sure why it's called Regis or kings or whatever. Maybe the king drove through it once. Maybe he stayed there when he was sick. But for whatever reason, that part of the town uh, has decided to adopt that name and it's persisted over time. Now, we know that uh, Jane Austen visited Lyme Regis at least twice during her life, staying there in 1803 and again in 1804. And you can tell she was pretty taken with the place from her description of it in Persuasion, which was written about 10 years or so later. And I sometimes wonder if her descriptions of Lyme weren't taken straight from her journal. And if you go to Lyme today, uh, it is a charming coastal town. And there is a Jane Austen walk and garden, which is really pretty. So let's listen to how Jane Austen describes Lyme in her own words. Uh, this is a bit of a longer clip, but it's just really interesting how she describes it. And as always, our audio recordings come from the talented Karen Savage over at LibriVox.org. And as there is nothing to admire in the buildings themselves, the remarkable situation of the town, the principal street almost hurrying into the water, the walk to the cob skirting round the pleasant little bay, which in the season is animated with bathing machines and company, the cob itself, its old wonders and new improvements, with the very beautiful line of cliffs stretching out to the east of the town, are what the stranger's eye will seek, and a very strange stranger it must be, who does not see charms in the immediate environs of Lyme, to make him wish to know it better. The scenes in its neighbourhood, Charmouth with its high grounds and extensive sweeps of country, and still more, its sweet retired bay backed by dark cliffs, where fragments of low rock among the sands make it the happiest spot for watching the flow of the tide, for sitting in unwearied contemplation. The woody varieties of the cheerful village of Uplime, and above all, Pinney, with its green chasms between romantic rocks, where the scattered forest trees and orchards of luxuriant growth declare that many a generation must have passed away since the first partial falling of the cliff prepared the ground for such a state, where a scene so wonderful and so lovely is exhibited, as may more than equal any of the resembling scenes of the far-famed Isle of Wight, these places must be visited, and visited again, to make the worth of Lyme understood. So clearly the takeaway here is that Lyme is beautiful, and if you don't think it's beautiful, there's something wrong with you. A couple of interesting notes from this description. First, I think the principal street that Austin refers to is probably Broad Street, 
which is still the main street in Lyme and was the main street as far back as the earliest map of Lyme I could find, or at least the earliest street map, which was drawn up in 1888. But if you're listening and you have an older street map of Lyme Regis, I'd love to see it. Now, interestingly, Cobb Road, which is another big road, nearly as as wide as Broad Street is in some areas and also runs, quote, as it were, into the sea, on the 1888 map was called New Street, but on a map from 1905, it was called Cobb Road. And that makes me believe that that street may have, in fact, not have existed in Austin's time, or at least was still pretty new. Um, Broad Street, by the way, despite its name and despite being the main road through Lyme, is really narrow. And it's only one lane in parts. And it's one lane in the British sense of a single lane road, which is a lot narrower than what you might find on a single lane road in the United States. And it is pretty terrifying to drive a minivan along that road and even more terrifying trying to park. The other thing she mentions, the bathing machines. So bathing machines were like little wagons or like little huts on wheels, kind of like tiny houses you might see today. And when you went to the beach, you would go into a bathing machine that was sitting on the beach and you would change into your swimming clothes. Or in some areas and time periods, you just take off all your clothes because people would swim in the nude. But in the early 1800s, it was typically only men that did that and not in all areas. Um, and so most likely the bathing machines in Lyme Regis at the time of persuasion, people were changing into bathing suits. And so once you were changed, the bathing machine was wheeled into the water. And often this was done by horses and then positioned so as to block anyone from shore from seeing you and your party as you entered the water. And it was pretty unheard of for men and women to swim together until the early 1900s. And if you've seen uh, Regency era bathing clothes for women, uh, it's just kind of interesting because they weren't exactly immodest. And so it's interesting that they would go through all this trouble to remain unseen in their bathing clothes. And that changed pretty drastically in the early 1900s once men and women started swimming together where it didn't become such a big deal anymore. If you've been to a beach in the UK or parts of Europe or other places uh, that former British crown colonies such as Australia or South Africa, you've probably seen uh, this tradition persist today in the form of these little colorful beach huts, sometimes called bathing boxes, which will often line uh, the shore of a beach. And those are the modern day equivalent of bathing machines. So these are typically privately owned. People will use them to go and kind of put all their stuff in or change clothes so they can go to the beach and not have to worry about hauling a bunch of stuff to and from the beach every time they go. Now, the other thing of note here is that because the party visits Lyme in November, not a lot of is uh, going on. And the one time I was in Lyme Regis, it was early January, and it was much the same. All the shops and businesses were closed for the season. Not all of them, but most of them. And most of the vacationers were absent, and there weren't uh, hardly any sea bathers because the water was so cold. Now, I've never been to Lyme in the summer, but uh, some of the locals tell me that it is super crowded and, in fact, that it's almost impossible to get up and down the main street because there's so much traffic coming in and out with tour buses and such. So I imagine even in Jane Austen's time, it would have been similar because, again, the roads are so narrow, traffic is so high, uh, lots of people go to Lyme Regis uh, even in that time period for vacation. All right, so finally, we need to talk about the infamous Cobb which forms the backdrop for one of the most pivotal scenes in the novel, I guess that was a bad pun, coming up in chapter 12. Now the Cobb is a seawall or jetty that juts out into the English Channel for a few hundred feet, forming kind of a natural harbor that allowed Lyme Regis to flourish as a seaport and shipbuilding town over the centuries. It has a sidewalk on top of the wall, 
as well as another sidewalk called the Lower Walk that follows along the base of the wall out into the sea. And these two walks are connected by a few different stone staircases. Now, the most fascinating historical fact about the Cobb, at least to me, is that nobody knows exactly when it was built or why it's called the Cobb. We only know that it's been around since at least the early 1300s because there are documents uh, talking about it dating back to 1313, and it's been destroyed and rebuilt a few different times because of storms. The two prevailing theories about its name are uh, either that it was named for some ancient feast known as the Cobb Ale Feast, and we don't know what that was either. We just know that it was talked about in some documents. Or uh, that it may have been named Cobb because the, the word Cobb is a term for a male swan. And the structure, if you kind of look at it from above, resembles a swan's neck. So, again, that, those are just the prevailing theories, but nobody really knows why it's named the Cobb. And while it's kind of always been relatively well known, you can, you know, tell from when Jane Austen talks about it in her book, you can pretty easily argue that it was Austen's writing about it that propelled it into uh, local and international tourist attraction status. In fact, uh, Jane Austen's great niece, Fanny Lefroy, who wrote some really fascinating things about Austen, which we should spend some more time talking about in a future episode. Uh, she wrote about a visit that Lord Alfred Tennyson made to Lyme in 1867. His friends from the area thought that, you know, he's the legendary author of The Charge of the Light Brigade. Surely he'd be interested in the military history of Lyme, particularly where the Duke of Monmouth had landed. Uh, the Duke was the illegitimate son of King Charles II, who tried unsuccessfully to start a rebellion in the 1600s to overthrow King James. And he sailed from Holland to Lyme, which is also an interesting story. And they wanted to show him, hey, here's where he landed and blah, blah, blah. But Lefroy, talking about her aunt, Jane Austen, says, We happened also to know when Mr. Tennyson went to Lyme and his friends wanted to show him the precise spot where the Duke of Monmouth landed, he exclaimed with an indignation, Don't talk to me of the Duke of Monmouth. Show me the precise spot where Louise Musgrove fell. Interesting that even this famous poet, super interested in this kind of literary landmark. It's not just crazy tourists uh, that go there. It was distinguished guests as well. Now, speaking of poets, uh, I want to wrap up today's episode with a brief comment about this clip on poets. And having talked of poetry, the richness of the present age, and gone through a brief comparison of opinion as to the first-rate poets, trying to ascertain whether Marmion or Lady of the Lake were to be preferred, and how ranked the Jaur and the Bride of Abydos, and moreover, how the Jaur was to be pronounced— he showed himself so intimately acquainted with all the tenderest songs of the one poet, and all the impassioned descriptions of hopeless agony of the other. He repeated with such tremulous feeling the various lines which imaged a broken heart, or a mind destroyed by wretchedness, and looked so entirely as if he meant to be understood, that she ventured to hope he did not always read only poetry, and to say that she thought it was the misfortune of poetry to be seldom safely enjoyed by those who enjoyed it completely." and that the strong feelings which alone could estimate it truly were the very feelings which ought to taste it but sparingly. Now, the poems that uh, they're discussing here, Marmion and Lady of the Lake, those were written by Sir Walter Scott, and the uh, Jaur and Bride of Abydos were written by Lord Byron. Now, these two poets, they were contemporaries and in the 1800s, and sometimes they were friends, but they were more like frenemies. They were harsh rivals and critics of one another, but they kind of admired one another's works, but they were also pretty quick to 
to write disparaging comments in public about one another. And if you're interested at all in British poetry, it's really worth looking into the lives and squabbles of these two men because it's pretty fascinating. Uh, Sir Walter Scott was about 17 years older and kind of viewed himself as sort of the elder statesman. And, and Lord Byron is like the young whippersnapper who's coming on the scene with his outlandish ideas. And of course, Lord Byron would have viewed Sir Walter Scott as so old fashioned and some of his poems are so tired and hackneyed and cliched and blah, blah, blah. And we need new things like the Jower and the Bride of Abydos and look how amazing those are. So anyway, pretty interesting stuff. Well, that wraps up our discussion of Persuasion Chapter 11. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to leefalen.com slash mycousinjane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.